On this episode of Nurses' Voices, we'll be discussing nursing advocacy and how one nurse responded to the death of her brother, who was homeless and died of a drug overdose at 43. She worked tirelessly to bring the effect of Canada's opioid crisis to the attention of healthcare providers, policymakers, and the public. This is Nurses' Voices. Nurses' Voices is sponsored by Pfizer Canada. It is supported by the Canadian Nurses Foundation and the Canadian Nurses Association. Welcome to Nurses' Voices. I'm Mary Wheeler. And I'm Gail Donu. What happens when we're touched by a personal event that highlights the gaps in healthcare and we know deep down we need to take action, but we wonder if we have the courage to act? We either confront the issue or turn away, let it go, not get involved. Our guest today took the high road and got involved in a big way. Six months after her brother Brad died on the street from an overdose, she began her advocacy work as a bereaved sister and as a nurse, humanizing the experience of people who use drugs and who are experiencing homelessness. As she says, it shaped my career and put me on a path of no return. We're going to hear from her, her brother's story and her advocacy work on his behalf. She epitomizes the great quote from Jerry Garcia, somebody has to do something and it's just incredibly pathetic that it has to be us. Welcome to Nurses Voices, Lee. Thank you. Lee Chapman, RN, PhD, is an adjunct lecturer in the graduate program at the Lawrence Bloomberg Faculty of Nursing, University of Toronto, teaching health policy and is a nurse advocate. She recently finished a two-year term as the inaugural director of clinical services with Inner City Health Associates. I think a way to begin this episode is really to hear about Brad's story because it's it's the springboard from where your advocacy began. It's hard to summarize the 43 years of his life in the Coles Notes version, but I'll try to make it brief. He was adopted into our family and then I came along and my brother came along and he had trouble from a very early age. So behavioral issues and learning disabilities and really had trouble in adolescence with family separation. I think for him, given that he was adopted, he felt parental abandonment and alienation. Family separation is hard for, for anyone, but it, it was especially hard for Brad. And that really led to a lot of risk-taking behavior, some experimentation with substance use, but, but not a lot at that point, uh, but subsequently he ended up having a brain tumor and it took about two years for the brain tumor to be diagnosed, during which time he was prescribed increasing doses of MS content. And we found out later on after he had this very difficult 13-hour brain surgery uh, to remove the tumor that he had actually been selling his MS content and buying OxyContin at the time. And when he couldn't get OxyContin, he was buying heroin. And his recovery from the brain tumor was imperiled because his addiction was such a pressing issue. And that set the path for his adult life. At that point, he had one child. At the time when he died, he had three children and some grandchildren. And so he was very talented. He was very musical. He was very athletic. He played hockey. He was in French immersion and really sort of grew up in this middle-class lifestyle. But in terms of his adult years, they were you know, cycles of incarceration and mired with substance use and homelessness for most of his adult life. 
he was very closely connected to my mom. I was very connected to his children and would always hear about where he was or what was happening uh, through my mom. But I was actually volunteering for the first time, for the first year that I had volunteered as a camp nurse when I got the call that he was in the ICU at Toronto General. So he had overdosed, was resuscitated on the scene and taken to Toronto General unidentified as a John Doe, uh, where he he basically stayed for a week until they were going to withdraw life support without notification of next of kin. And when they called the public trustee and guardian to do so, the public trustee and guardian advised them to try to find next of kin before withdrawing. So they, of course, police had his ID in the evidence locker, and it was just never revealed to the hospital. So from some mysterious and magical sleuthing from the hospital ICU spiritual care advisor. They were able to find next of kin and notify my mom and notify me. And, and, and fortunately, we were able to get all of his children down at the bedside for all of life support. So I think that was a gift. It was very difficult, but he could have also died in, in the alley. It was a gift of time to, to be with him at the, at the end of life. What put you on this trajectory then to say, I, I need to do something about what happened to Brad and where the gaps were in the system? So it wasn't immediate. I think my immediate unease was with the police response, because when I spoke to the police, they were really interested in telling me about his, the paraphernalia that he had on him and, and his lifestyle. And I was really perplexed because I thought if that was me in an alley, I would hope there would be a different response. And I would hope that like, this is still a 43 year old man who died a preventable death. I was really struck that somebody like Brad, who is so connected to services, white, middle-class upbringing, could, you know, English as a first language, could articulate his needs very clearly. So how does this happen to somebody? We have a social welfare system. We have a universal healthcare system. How does this happen that people get left behind and not just gaps in the system, but gaping holes in the system? So it was about six months after he died that I learned that there was a men's shelter that was being proposed in my community. And I immediately saw the social media backlash. And it was really interesting for me because there had previously been a proposal for support for a shelter for women and support for another shelter for families. And the community just rallied behind these other shelters. But homeless men were very highly stigmatized and seen as criminals and people who use drugs and pedophiles and not allowed in our community, essentially. So I decided to give a deputation. And I didn't know what a deputation was. I had never been to City Hall except to get my marriage license. <laughs> I learned that it was a speech that was timed. And so I had to be very prepared. And it was very emotional for me to sit in front of a council of people and say that I supported this shelter in my community because it was the right thing to do as a, as a nurse, as a bereaved sister, it would have helped people like my brother Brad. And the very first question that I was asked was, so from your perspective as a nurse, is this shelter a good idea? And I was just absolutely, it, for me, that was the pivotal moment. I really realized that I had a voice as a, as a trusted healthcare professional and that I could use that voice and use that power and privilege to, to lend support to issues that would have helped people like Brad. And so that's essentially what I did. And that ended up being a whole other <laughs> journey that I wasn't anticipating. 
shortly after that, I was contacted by a community health agency, uh, and they said, we saw what you did for the men's shelter. <laughs> um, we're also putting a proposal through for supervised consumption. Could you lend support to this? And I really had to think about it. I'm a mom. I was a PhD student at the time. I was not looking for a side project, and I certainly wasn't looking to get involved in something that's such a polarizing issue. Uh, but at the same time, I knew the evidence. I knew about Insight, which is North America's first supervised consumption site. I knew that there were sites all over the world that we were sort of lagging behind in um, Canada. And I also knew that the Public Health Agency of Canada only started tracking overdose deaths in 2016, and Brad died in 2015. So lots of people ha had died in the years preceding when this had been tracked at a, at a federal level. So I lent support to supervised consumption sites, and they were subsequently approved in 2016. Uh, but essentially, I was really trying to humanize Brad and people who use drugs. I can't profess to share Brad's experiences at all, but I can certainly share his story and lend support to people like Brad who had experienced similar things. And I, ultimately, this is about stigma and discrimination. It's not it's not a moral issue. People don't wake up and choose to use drugs. And if they do choose to use drugs, that's also their choice. And I think we need to support that. And we, we do support choice in other ways in healthcare, yet we discriminate very heavily against people who use drugs. And I, I think as a society, we do because it's highly criminalized. And so that leads to a lot of moral contempt for people who use drugs who are really just trying to survive their life and their trauma or to have pleasure or to seek pleasure and euphoria. I basically got very involved in harm reduction advocacy. And for me, it was a way of lending support, but also a way of processing my grief uh, because I met like-minded people who had similar stories of loss and similar stories of injustice. It, it was very relatable. When I spoke to my, my peers and my friends, they had, didn't know what to say. But of course, the harm reduction community had tons of experience with overdose deaths and, and they knew 10 stories like Brad. So that actually became quite meaningful work for me uh, to be involved in this advocacy work around something I felt so strongly about, that this was the right thing to do. This is the evidence-based approach and it's a crisis. <laughs> we need to be doing more. Now, am I right that you had not done anything like this before? I was very interested in apartheid and the injustice of apartheid when I was growing up. And I went to see Winnie Mandela when she came to Toronto. And I was really sort of interested in the unjustness of segregation and, and under apartheid. But that that was really it. I, you know, I don't think that I was a closet social justice warrior. I really felt that this was not right. It wasn't just that Brad died of an overdose in a rich city like Toronto. We pride ourselves on the resources that we have for people. but I just was so struck that if somebody like Brad can die, it's so easy for other people with less resources. And it sounds a little bit as if where you were in your own career and figuring out what your contribution in nursing would be, given where you were studying, et cetera, that things came together in, a, in an interesting way in that mm. people were interested to hear what you had to say, not only because you were Brad's sister, but also because yeah. you were a trustworthy person, a, mm. a nurse and a professional. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think I had the liberty of being a doctoral student at the time. So I was a bit of a free agent. And in fact, I could speak more freely than my friends who worked at Toronto Public Health or at the community health centers. I could say and do what I wanted to do because I wasn't tied to any agency. And I always did so grounded in you know, the stories of people with lived experience and grounded in evidence. It led to a ton of media opportunities that I was not at all comfortable with or familiar with. And I, I really just had to remind myself that it wasn't about me. It was about the story. And if people could hear the story of Brad's death and the, the sort of senseless loss, then surely they would get behind these services because uh, it would have helped him. It would have saved his life. So I just kept reminding myself of that every time I would get in front of a camera or talk to a reporter or or just be advocating, writing letters to city councillors, deputing. That was that was really the first of many deputations. What do we as nurses need to learn about advocacy and being able to step forward rather than holding back? Yeah, I mean, I think nurses are really good advocates. I think we are advocates all the time at the point of care. And it's really just transferring those skills to another facet of, of life. And I think if you're a nurse, for example, at UHN, you may not be able to speak out about a particular issue. But if you don't identify yourself as a nurse from UHN, you can say, I'm a registered nurse. I mean, I just, for years, I said, I'm a registered nurse and harm reduction advocate uh, without any institutional affiliation. And that allowed me to speak freely. Really, it's about Brad and Brad's story and advocating for a cause. And I don't think any employer or organization would ever fault you for something that is personally meaningful. It doesn't have to be as personal as the death of a sibling, but it can just be climate change. It can be budget cuts, austerity measures, things that are impacting us as a society. I think that nurses absolutely have a voice in raising concerns about those issues and can speak out very effectively. We just need to have the courage to do so. I had nothing to lose. I had nothing to lose. I'd lost my brother and I had nothing to lose in speaking out and lending my power and privilege as a nurse to this cause that I felt so strongly about. It was just really my ego getting in front of a camera or speaking out publicly. And and really, you know, some of the media around my brother's death has really been, it's felt like airing my family's dirty laundry. But on the other hand, if it could help other people, that's the reason for doing so. What have you learned about yourself and about advocacy? And if it was seven years ago, is there anything you'd do differently, Lee? the things that was probably the most uh, transformative learning experience for me was in 2017, I was part of a group called the Toronto Overdose Prevention Society, and we opened a tent, a supervised consumption site in Moss Park, and ran that uh, for 11 months. Initially as a tent, uh, in December, we got a trailer, uh, and that stayed until July of 2018. And it really changed the course of provincial overdose response. Uh, at the time, we really had the ear of the Liberal government. The, the most important learnings for me have been the importance of a narrative, a story, Brad's story, or the story of people with lived experience. So sometimes my role is to honestly get out of the way and to provide space for people who use drugs or people with lived experience to share their perspective because those are the, I can't speak for Brad and those are the perspectives that need to be 
really uh, spot like highlighted. I was very afraid, especially with this act of civil disobedience. I was afraid that I would be the first nurse in the world to be arrested because of opening a supervised consumption site. And the police, when they came to the scene on the opening, on the day that we opened, we looked very nursey. There was myself and a nurse practitioner and we had stethoscopes around our neck. And uh, the police said, the crisis supersedes the law. And so it was sort of tacit approval to stay. And I think I, I was still, I was still very afraid of arrest. And I thought, well, if this is how I go down as a nurse, this is a really good cause because it saved countless lives. And it, it, as I said, it changed the course of provincial harm reduction. I don't recommend breaking the law, but I do recommend bold action. And I think that nurses have a lot of power and privilege and we, we need to leverage that and lend support whenever we can to causes that are meaningful to us personally and professionally. Are you continuing the work? felt like I was very much still involved in harm reduction in the work that I did over the past two years of the pandemic. And I'm still certainly involved. Over time, what actually has happened is that a lot of my colleagues have died. So my colleagues in harm reduction have died because they are people who use drugs and the toxicity of the drug supply is so, so terrible. So I initially joined this work almost selfishly as my pathway out of grief. And I didn't expect that it would actually lead to more grief and compounded grief. I was invited to a meeting in Vancouver as an advocate and my colleague died, um, didn't actually make it to the meeting. And, you know, I've been to tons and tons of nursing conferences in my career and I've never had a colleague not make it, like saving a seat beside me for a colleague who didn't actually make it to the conference because was dead in his hotel room. So I think I had to have a little bit of distance from the work so that I could complete my PhD, so that I could parent. And I needed to also be okay because it, it's very, very difficult work. And the, the COVID has just absolutely compounded the crisis. And it's difficult to see how we have mobilized so quickly for COVID. Uh, we've mobilized so quickly and the response has certainly not been uh, the same for the overdose crisis. This has been a very painful journey then on lots of levels. And I think one of the lessons, getting back to Mary's question that I hear from you, is also you have to look after self. And uh, especially, yeah. I mean, there are lots of kinds of advocacy. This particular kind of advocacy comes with a lot of pain. It absolutely does. Yeah. And so you need, I mean, whether it's the group uh, of people who are all fighting the same fight or whether it's family or friends and colleagues, but you do have to look after uh, yourself. There's no question or you won't have the strength to fight the next battle as it were. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, it's that notion of having to put your own oxygen mask on first. Like it, it's so important. And when you talk about the nursing profession, we often talk about our resilience, especially, you know, I've been reflecting on this a lot coming out of COVID. We, we talk about our resilience as a, as a profession and uh, our leadership. And I think we also need to talk about our vulnerability. And I know there's lots of nurses who have personal, devastating personal stories. It's not to say that every nurse needs to leverage that into an advocacy opportunity, but but some could if the time is right for them to share their story. I think we need to learn more about our collective vulnerability as a nursing community. I think there's power in that. 
that's the sweet spot of actually leveraging our nursing knowledge and our professionalism to lend voice to people who are often voiceless and forgotten and forgotten by our universal healthcare system. When we talk about health inequity, for health inequity, people like Brad, they care is just too high barrier. It's just inaccessible, even though he, I'm sure, had an OHIP card at one point in his life. <laughs> care is inaccessible for him because of his substance use, because of his homelessness, because of his cycles of incarceration. It really is just a quest for survival, which we don't often think about in developed country, you know, a rich city like Toronto, but there's so many people who are left behind and who are just desperately trying to survive every day. And we do everything as a society, but help them. <laughs> we criminalize them. We blame them. We look past them on the street. We don't give them money because if we give them money, they might spend it on drugs or alcohol. Uh, and we all have that choice to do what we so choose with our money. But there are people literally trying to survive and, and struggling to survive on our streets every day. As we bring a close to this conversation, which regrettably we have to bring a close, I think it could go on for a long time. So what's next for you, Lee, Lee Chapman? I'm definitely looking for leadership opportunities where I can use that advocacy to affect change. And I, I think I have done so in the last couple of years during the COVID pandemic, really of, of just being involved, sitting at tables with Ontario Health, working with Toronto Public Health, working with the municipality to try to affect change. Sometimes that is it's small nudges as opposed to big pushes of work, but it's still advocating from the inside versus from the outside. And I think that's still very effective work and advocacy. So I'm looking for leadership opportunities in nursing where I can bring it all together. My doctoral work, my experience and my advocacy, that would be the trifecta. If I could find something that is a fit, for me, the fit is really about value. Having an organization that does uphold values of health equity and and caring for people who are vulnerable. I want to thank you so much. I th and thank you really for telling your story with heart and meaning and compassion and telling Brad's story. Even though Gail and I never met Brad, you've made him alive. Uh, you've made him human. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of season two of Nurses Voices. We look forward to seeing you in future episodes. Until then, we encourage you to view previous episodes from this season and from our first season. I'm sure you'll find them interesting. You can view and listen to Nurses Voices on a variety of platforms, including YouTube and Apple Podcasts. And remember, if you wanna give us any feedback, please connect with us through nursesvoices.ca and remember to sign up for our e-newsletter. Nurses Voices is sponsored by Pfizer Canada. It is created by Donner Mueller. It is produced by Sector Limited. It is supported by the Canadian Nurses Foundation and the Canadian Nurses Association. Mm -hmm.